We are going to be in the Song of Solomon this morning, which is about in the middle of your Bible. It's in the wisdom literature. Three books that Solomon wrote are all together. The Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then the Song of Solomon. So if you can find the Psalms and Proverbs, you're going to go a little bit to your right, and you're going to get to the Song of Solomon. It's a short book. It's eight chapters. It was written by Solomon probably during his earlier life, uh, no doubt, as we'll explain in a moment. He wrote Ecclesiastes when he was older, Proverbs probably when he was middle-aged, and he wrote the Song of Solomon most likely when he was younger. It could well be on the eve or close to his first marriage. Now, you all know that Solomon had a, a lot of women in his life, and uh, there's some implications in this book that this was either his first marriage or it was very early in his life. It is all about romance on the face value. So I will tell you this, if you have younger ones either watching at home or in the sanctuary right now, which I don't think we do, take advantage of the Sunday school or just make sure that you're aware. There will be some adult content, but I will tell you this, it's very delicate. It's done very delightfully and beautifully. So uh, we'll, we'll keep it, you know, it'll be PG-13. PG so the overall series we're calling this is an invitation to intimacy in the Song of Solomon. Uh, how many of you have ever heard a sermon series on the Song of Solomon? Raise up your hand. Okay, it's a fairly small percentage. And they say that this book scares preachers uh, more than the book of Revelation, <laughs> which, you know. And, and here's probably why. It is talking about romance and love and intimacy and focusing more on the, maybe we would say the feeling side of things. And so male preachers, probably a lot like me, may have a more difficult time with some of the concepts and the link that we are the bride of Christ. When guys hear that we're the bride of Christ, sometimes assimilating that and understanding that is a little bit difficult. But this Song of Solomon is an important part of our Bibles. It is in our Bibles, and it's there for a reason. Let me explain that most of you growing up in the church are exposed to doctrines within the church. When you hear about sex, what you typically think is in the negative in the church. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 puts it this way. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And then it talks about how you should guard yourself and abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the two words sexual immorality in our English Bibles is a single word, pornea, in the Greek. It's where we get the word pornography. And that word basically means any illicit sexual relationship outside the covenant of marriage. So some of you may be wondering, well, why do I have to wait until I'm married? If God created this and it's something that's good and even celebrated in the Song of Solomon, why do I need to wait? Because what is celebrated in the Song of Solomon is within a covenant of marriage. I'm going to be a little bit blunt, but I think you're going to get the picture. When a woman is with a man for the first time, she bleeds. Why? Because blood is a sign of the covenant. And when we do things outside of God's order, we upend his best for us and we also muddy the spiritual picture. Here's the spiritual picture. Christ loves his church. 
The father gave the son to be married to his bride. The dowry was the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it cost to buy you. The wedding feast is pictured in Revelation 19. It's the marriage supper of the lamb. Revelation 21 says the bride has made herself ready. The Bible is filled with these images of marriage comparing it to our spiritual life. So there's been three main interpretations of the Song of Solomon. One is an allegorical uh, interpretation. Basically, Jewish scholars believe possibly that it was a, basically a song, a poetic treatment of the book of Exodus, which we've been studying on Wednesday nights. And basically, here's how it works. The children of Israel are the bride. God is the groom or the potential groom. They're in Egypt. And they want to be taken to his uh, chambers, if you will, into the promised land. So these scholars would say that everything's allegorical. There's no literal content. The people are made up. And it's simply a poetic or allegorical way to look at Exodus. For example, there was a marriage covenant given at Mount Sinai. You all know a ketubah in the Hebrew idea. God made a covenant with the people. He offered the covenant. They said, I will, etc., now, the second way to see the book, and I think that this is a more solid way to see it, is in typology. What is typology? Simply meaning that this story does involve Solomon and a Shulamite bride we'll talk about, but it has a second layer of a way to look at it or on a higher spiritual plane. While it is about a real romance between two real people, on a spiritual level, it is about our intimacy with God. When we see passages like to know him, you've probably heard that the word know has intimacy, uh, close connotations in marriage. And the, the picture that's being painted for us is that when we know God, it's compared to a knowing within marriage. Of course, we don't push it too far, but you get the idea. Let me give you an example. For Israel, whenever they committed spiritual adultery against God. They were with another idol. They worshiped a false God. That was compared to spiritual adultery. So that our intimacy with God as compared in marriage is probably paralleled on a spiritual plane with our worship. When we worship another God, when, when our hearts turn away from God, that is the parallel. Paul puts it this way, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection and even the fellowship of his sufferings. God is inviting us into a close, intimate relationship with him, probably best pictured in marriage. By the way, when the book of Genesis says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, Hebrew scholars say that that word one there or one flesh is first and foremost about their physical intimate relationship. We can talk about friendship oneness. We can talk about, you know, uh, different ways that we are close to a person. But in the Hebrew there, it's no doubt that it's about the sexual intimacy of two literally becoming one. And so over the years of church history, the church has oftentimes steered so far on the conservative side that they've even said things like this. Don't have sexual intimacy except for purposes of procreation. To have babies. To be fruitful and multiply. That is absolutely false. 
Intimacy within marriage can produce offspring, but the main purpose of it is oneness. It's to know a person this side of heaven like you could never know anyone else. And that is what's being celebrated in the Song of Solomon. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you for all the folks that are here. I thank you for the Word of God. Every part of it is inspired and profitable. But this is a sensitive area. And there are some who have the gift of singleness in this room. Some are widowed or widowers. Um, some are coming off the heels of a very broken relationship. And there's a lot of healing that needs to occur in some of these areas, Lord. And we all realize it. None of us have arrived. And we want to pray that from the beginning. We all know that we need grace in these areas. We're growing. We're learning. None of us have done it perfectly, I'm sure. But I pray that we'd have ears to hear what you would say to us about the art of attraction, about love within the context of a beautiful covenant, about the fact that you designed marriage and intimacy to be something celebrated and wonderful and something that we can share with a person that is like nothing else. And I pray that you would show us what you want us to see, give us ears to hear and a heart to respond in a way that pleases you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, the Song of Solomon opens with the Song of Songs. That's verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, which is Solomon's. Sometimes you will see the, the actual book called the Song of Songs. Sometimes it's called the Song of Solomon. You might wonder why. Well, pretty much because of verse 1. It's a superscription, but basically it's merging both the ideas together. You could call it the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. The reason it's called the Song of Songs is because it is the song of all songs or what Solomon might consider the most important song. You might have a top five of songs that you like of all time, worship songs or otherwise. That's kind of what's being said here. Similar ideas are the holy of holies, the heavens of heavens, the king of kings, the lord of lords. This is the song of all songs. In fact, the Bible tells us that Solomon wrote quite a bit in his lifetime, 1 Kings 4, we'll put up on the screen for you. This is verses 29 through 34. It reads this way. God gave wisdom, gave Solomon wisdom, 1 Kings 4, 29, and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men. And his fame, we'll skip some of those hard names, was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs. We have 31 in the book of Proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. So this is the song of songs or the best of them, if you will. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is Lebanon. Lebanon's mentioned six times in the Song of Solomon. Even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals. We'll see that in the song. Birds, creeping things, and fish. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who heard of his wisdom. Now it is important to recognize that the book is within wisdom literature because we need wisdom in this area of life. Uh, my wife was just reading something recently. It came from a university and what was it, 96% of those college students are now saying they are, what, gender confused? Was that how it was put? Something, something of that nature. 
Look, we have opened Pandora's box with losing the idea of biblical marriage, the redefinition of marriage, and now all these genders that are out there. I think they're up to about 70 right now. I don't know how that actually occurs. But this is what's being said. We're rejecting what we're assigned at birth, and we're going to determine our own gender. This is, it, it's become nuts. It's almost like, is this a dream or, you know, is this a joke? But it's not a joke. There is mass confusion and there is a need for biblical wisdom. And the Bible actually does address these things. In fact, I would say to you that most of our moral issues in our world and the tragedies that are linked from them have to do with a vacating of biblical wisdom on this issue. For example, premarital sex and otherwise, and then babies that are unexpected, and you know how this snowball rolls. This is kind of how it goes, because we don't do things God's way. Let me just say that I didn't do things God's way. Uh, I didn't really become a Christian until my early 20s. I had some background in the things of God, but I was not committed to the Lord, and I didn't know his word. And so a lot of these areas that I'm going to talk about today, for me, are areas where I failed. I sinned against the Lord. But the good news is that he gave me and my wife a new beginning in Christ, and to build on a proper foundation. And so this is in wisdom literature. It's penned by Solomon. That's obvious from the first uh, verse. Now, the structure of the book is that many believe that it's a commentary, an extended commentary on Genesis 2, 23 and 24, set in a garden motif. And the structure of the book or the format is it's written in seven idols, if you're taking notes, I-D-Y-L-S. Seven idols are basically seven songs written in a kind of rural pastoral setting with a romantic cast. The best way to capture the genre here is that it is a song, but it's more like musical theater. And there are four main actors or actresses in the play. One is the Shulamite bride. She's a young bride. The second is Solomon. He's the bridegroom. The third is the daughters of Jerusalem, her friends and maybe part of her wedding party. And then her brothers, the brothers of the bride. Four main characters in the play. There's two, uh, and I would say, and to my uh, liking or knowledge, two main backstories. One, Solomon visited one of his many vineyards as a king early in his rule. He ruled Jerusalem from 970 BC to 930 BC. He visited one of his vineyards and he saw a peasant girl who was stunningly beautiful and he was attracted to her and he called her over. She was overwhelmed by who he was and shy and ran away from him. And so in the running away from him, he realized that to win her, he needed to dress in the garb of a shepherd and become more on her level. So he goes back to the palace. This is conjecture, but one possible backdrop. He puts on the garb of a shepherd, then goes and meets her. She's more comfortable with him. A relationship develops, and then she realizes that he's the king. Now, this is an interesting possible backstory because we serve a shepherd king. His name is Jesus. 
At Sinai, the people were afraid of God. They said, you go talk to him. They made a marriage covenant, but it was largely from a distance. But when Jesus came as our good shepherd, we got to know him face to face on our level. He became one of us. And so it may well be that Solomon is a type of the Messiah. We don't want to push it too far. But Solomon was the son that was going to sit on David's throne. And there is a definite parallel from Solomon to Christ. And so that's one way to see it. Now, others see it this way. Solomon shows up at that same vineyard, sees that same girl, but she's in love with a shepherd boy who's uh, distinct from Solomon. And Solomon tries to win her, though she's in love with somebody else. And the book is him trying to basically woo her to himself away from the shepherd boy that she actually loves. I do not give much credence to option two because I don't think that Solomon would write a book where he's the villain, do you? <laughs> and plus there's enough in the book to see that she actually loves Solomon. So I think option two is out. I think Solomon is, if there is a backstory that we can kind of link this to, I think the first option that he's the shepherd king is a good one. There are seven idols here uh, that we'll come across set in song or musical theater. And some of the content is, you might even say erotic. You might find yourself, instead of saying amen, saying, oh my. And uh, you, you may have thought that, is this book really in my Bible? I've, did someone like tape it in there or something? No, it's been there for a long time. In fact, this book was accepted by all the Jewish fathers and all the early Christian fathers, although there was some debate because of its content, like some people had questions about it, but it was accepted from very early days on a wide spectrum. So the book is about romantic love, but it has that additional higher level of uh, spiritual intimacy. Paul put it this way, Ephesians 5, 31, 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. It is undeniable that there is a link from this idea of marital uh, romance to spiritual realities. Spurgeon put it this way. It, the Song of Solomon, is a book of deep mystery, not to be understood except by the initiated, this book stands like the tree of life in the midst of the garden. No one will ever be able to pluck its fruit and eat of it until he has been brought to Christ and passed the sword of the cherubim and, it, and is then able to rejoice in that love that delivered him from death, close quote. And so we can see the backstory, we can see the genre, we can see some of the structure and it opens with an explosion of words from the bride to be this in this way. Just one other note. It doesn't work chronologically. It starts with the wedding night. And then like some movies goes back to revisit the days leading up to the wedding. So it's not necessarily in chronological order. She says, verse 2, may he kiss me with the kiss of his mouth for your love. The idea of the word love there can mean to boil your love is better than wine. Now she desires to kiss him and kissing in relationships is a good thing. 
Uh, I heard a marriage ministry say recently, no matter how long you've been married, you should continue to passionately kiss, not just do a bushel and a peck. <laughs> See ya, love ya. <laughs> On the side, right? Now, when we kiss passionately, they say you should kiss at least 15 to 20 seconds. Try not to count with a hand that she can see as you're doing it. You heard uh, the guy who went to the uh, counselor with his wife. They were having some problems and, you know, they began to talk to him and she began to break down and cry and the counselor just walked over and gave her a hug and just held her for a moment and she wept on his shoulder and he looked at the man, he said, you see, that's all she needs, just a little tender affection. And the husband replied, okay, what days can we come in during the week so that you can <laughs> provide that for her? Since I'm a guy, I'm going to challenge you guys to say that some of you are romantically impaired. <laughs> I just want you to let that settle for a moment. And if you are romantically impaired, you're going to be in trouble. Because you need to continue to woo your bride. And there are ways to keep romance fresh. Things change, of course, as years go by. Nonetheless, here is her desire to kiss him. She wants to kiss him because his love, keyword, his love is better than wine. In Jewish culture, wine was a symbol of life and joy. So to say his kiss or his love is better than wine is to say it, it is one of the most uh, important pleasant things in my life. We love him because he first loved us. Jesus says, all men will know that you belong to me for your love, because of your love, one for another. If you want to know the art of attraction, if you're a younger person and you're trying to measure, or maybe you're, you know, uh, a person who's middle-aged or older, but you're still desiring a relationship with someone, let me just say, the first thing that you should look at is love. Are they a loving person? Well, how do we know what love is? 1 John 3.16 answers the question. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. What should you look for if you're a young lady? Look for, is he chivalrous? Does he open the door for you? Is he tender? Does he push you? Is he harsh? If he's harsh in the courting days, look out because you're getting his best foot forward right now. So look to see if he's filled with the love of God, which is a sign that he's a believer walking in the Spirit because the first fruit of the Spirit is love. Amen? So she says, it's your love that has drawn me to you. He loved us while we were yet enemies Romans 5, 8. We can grow in love, Philippians 1, 9. His loving kindness is better than life, Psalm 63, 3. This is the kind of love with which he has loved us. And since marriage captures that love of him for his bride, so our marriages, when they are loving, become a picture of the gospel. And when they are not, they muddy the gospel message. That's just the facts. So she is celebrating her, his love and she says, your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Verse three, your name, another key word to underline, is like purified oil. NIV, your name is like perfume poured out. 
when Mary poured out that costly perfume in John 12, verse 3, it said that the fragrance of the perfume filled the house. She said, your name is like the best cologne. Let me just say this to you guys. A good name, Solomon will write in Proverbs, is better than many treasures, gold and silver. A good name is to be treasured. And there is only one way to get a good name. A good name comes from good character. And the sweetest cologne is an honorable name. Now, I will tell you this. I said to you just a little bit earlier, for a while, I did not do things God's way. And I'm not sure when my name was brought up in certain company, what people would say about my name. But that has changed. God has made me a new creation in Christ Jesus, along with my beautiful bride. And now I believe I have a good name. There's always a chance to start again. If you've done things the wrong way, I don't want you to feel condemned today. I just want you to hear the word of God. Because the, the word of God is always about new beginnings. It's always about grace and forgiveness and love in the gospel. A good name, Ecclesiastes 7.1, he wrote it later in his life, is better than fine perfume. So if you are considering someone to court or potentially to marry, let me ask you a question. Have you considered their character? Do you know who they are? Do you know what they believe? Do you know what kind of morality they normally demonstrate at work and in friendships and in other places? Character should be at the top of your list. And if you find a man or a woman of high character, then they're probably going to be a keeper because beauty fades, right? Beauty over time fades, but a beautiful person in the heart is the most important thing. I'm not saying that looks on the outside don't matter because they, they're not a bad thing, okay? <laughs> but I'm just saying this, what is truly going to last if you're married for many decades to the same individual is the inside beauty and a commitment to a covenant where you will find safety and blessing and hope. She says, because of your high character, this is why the maidens, verse three, part B, love you. No wonder the maidens love you. Look, this guy is a catch. And even the wedding party or her friends are like, well, yes, he's a catch. Where do you find a man like him? They know he's a catch and she realizes he's a catch as well. And so she says, draw me after you. Let us run together. The king, notice now, he's the king, has brought me into his chambers. The chambers here speak of the, the, the bridal, uh, the bridegroom and, and the bride being together on that wedding night. But this is anticipatory. The, the wedding party responds. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love, celebrate it more than wine. They repeat what she said. Rightly do they, a reference to the virgins, love you. Everybody in the wedding party is excited for this couple. Let me give you an insight here. If you bring someone home and your parents and grandparents give the thumbs down, <laughs> you may want to pay attention to that. Let me say why. I'm not saying they're always going to be correct because those of you who have daughters have cleaned your shotgun for years now, <laughs> waiting for the prospective suitor to arrive. 
No one's good enough for my baby. Don't even think about it. And you've been cleaning that gun. And, I, and I'm not going to say it's not a good idea. <laughs> but here, here's the thing. If your closest friends, people who have good moral discernment, and your family don't like the person, you should pay attention to that. I'm not saying that's always going to be 100% correct. I'm just saying it's something to take note of. What we would like is everybody to be celebrating it. I know it's hard for parents to let go, so I'm not going to comment on that hard part of it. You guys get what I'm saying. If you have a best friend in the Lord saying, I don't think this is a good idea, or you say something like this, he'll, he'll become a Christian after being with me. I know I'm just going to rub off on him. And you're doing missionary dating. She will become a believer. She's so beautiful. She has to. Right? And you overlook the fact that she's not spiritually born again. You in trouble. You got to make sure you're on the same page. That's why the Bible says to be equally yoked. And so everyone's celebrating their love. Verse 5. And she says, she has some doubts about her look. She says, I am black or very dark, ESV, New King James, but lovely or beautiful. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, they were black, made of goat's hair. Like the curtains of Solomon, which were also black. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy. All other versions say dark. But here's why. This has nothing to do with her heredity, nothing to do with the melanin amount in her skin. She's tan, She's Middle Eastern, so she already has olive skin, most likely. But she's been burned by the sun. Notice it says, For the sun has burned me. My mother's sons, that's her brothers, were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyard. She's a peasant who works in the sun for many hours. And she says, I've not taken care of my own vineyard, which may point to her body like she dresses in the garb of a worker. And the sun has beat down on her and she's done a lot of hard labor. And so she's not really tried or had time to present herself in a more girly fashion to gain a suitor. She's been too busy working hard. And she's so burned by the sun that she's got a suntan. Now in our culture, a suntan is never anything to apologize about, right? We, we know all the songs about it. We know the beaches of Southern California. If you've got a tan, you got it going on. But back in the day, lily white, milky white skin meant that you were under the regal roofs and not exposed as a peasant to long hours in the, in the sun. And so what would happen is if you were dark, it meant you were poor. It meant you were a hard worker. Now the Bible actually celebrates hardworking women. Rebecca, Rachel was a shepherdess, according to the book of Genesis, hard worker. The Proverbs 31 woman makes her arms strong. She works out. She can bench press a lot of weight. <laughs> now this is celebrated in the Bible. And I will say this, even though this is the time and that's why she doubts her appearance, strong women are something to celebrate. And I don't think I've met a woman that's not strong. <laughs> I, I think that's a, a beautiful gift in a marriage. I'm married to a beautiful woman who is strong. Now, I can beat her in arm wrestling, and if I couldn't, that would be pathetic. However, she's strong in so many other ways. In fact, my wife can fix just about everything. 
And some people say, does that challenge your masculinity? Response, not at all. <laughs> I celebrate it every single day. On Christmas morning, you know who's putting the bike together years ago? It ain't Pastor Michael. <laughs> and here's why. She wouldn't let me touch it. You know why? She knew what I would do, which I would mess it up. So I made hot cocoa. She put the bike together. And everything's well in the Lance household. Now, she doubts her looks, which is a sign of humility to me. She doubts her class. How could a king love me? But that's what I think just about every day when I think about Jesus' love for me. Amen? How could this king love me? He knows who I am. I don't feel presentable to him most days of my life. I don't know why he chose to love me, to buy me with the dowry of his blood, but he did. And that thrills my heart, frankly. That's a love that makes me deeply desire to look into his eyes one day. And that's the love that's here. Tell me, O oh, you whom my soul loves, seven, she asks, where do you pasture your flock? Since you're dressed as a shepherd, where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Now, since he's dressed as a shepherd, she's got some questions like, she says, well, where do you hang out? This is kind of like a playful uh, leading into a rendezvous, but she doesn't want to go too far because she believes that things should be done properly. The man should be the aggressor. She doesn't want to be veiled. Some people say it's the veil of a prostitute. I don't know if that's the case. But she doesn't want to go poking around the tents of other shepherds that are out there. So she wants to know where he hangs out. Is it at the mall? You know, where is it? So they can have a little rendezvous and get to know each other better. And that's all that's going on here. And I would just say some playful uh, talk like this when it's appropriate can be good you know, just, just to have some fun and just say, you know, where could we meet to get to know each other better? Of course, on an appropriate plane, whether you meet for coffee or whatever, etc. And so this is what's going on. There is a spiritual attraction. I want you to see it. It's his love. It's his name. It's the core sense of who he is first. We'll get to the physical stuff in a moment. That will follow. But there's a guy that wrote a book called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. What did he mean by that? He meant that if you want the bedroom to be healthy, other parts of your relationship should be healthy. Like if you're in the kitchen washing dishes together, having some fun, you know, having friendship embraces before it leads to the bedroom. If that is healthy, then other parts of your life will be healthy as well. And Solomon responds, he says, if you yourself do not know most beautiful among women, if you don't know where I hang out, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. He's kind of being a little evasive. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, I don't recommend that you go out to Vaughn's after the church service and find a card that says, honey, to me, you're like a horse. I don't think that that is going to go over well. You might be sleeping with a horse if you uh, live in Norco. So what in the world is this guy saying? Well, remember, this is written a long time ago. And the horse is actually probably a stallion. And it was the single white mare that led the chariot of the pharaoh. 
And I think what he's saying is you are unique. You are beautiful. You're one of a kind. One commentator I read said that in chariot battles, uh, you can think of the ancient Egyptians, etc., the history of Israel, they would find a mare in heat and that mare could become a distraction to the other horses pulling the chariot. And so he may be saying something like this, your beauty is a distraction to me. You're unique, etc. You are like my mare. One of the among the chariots of Pharaoh, your cheeks, notice, are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. Now remember, she normally didn't dress up because she was working in the fields. So this could point to her wedding day when she put on the jewels or it may simply point to something in our modern way of thinking of things, which is a wedding dress. Now on the day of a wedding, and I've had the privilege of standing and officiating at many weddings, it's always uh, interesting because the women take 16 hours to get ready. The guys, 15 minutes. You know why? Because he doesn't do anything different on the wedding day, except he's got this rented tuxedo that he's sporting, that he has to return, you know, 24 hours later. But she has carefully shopped for that dress. Sometimes it's handed down. Recently did a wedding, and the, the bride's dress was beautiful. She was beautiful. And so... This is probably what's going on here. He's saying, you're beautiful, but when you dress up like this, like on the wedding day, oh, you are, your beauty is beyond compare. Um, sometimes it's, well, not sometimes. It's always important to remind the one that you love that they're beautiful. If you think it, it's not the same as speaking it. You've got to reassure your loved one of your love for them. And so I am constantly saying to my bride, you are beautiful. You are, I call her my beautiful rose. Now, the reason I call her my beautiful ro rose is that to me, she's the most beautiful woman and unique flower on the planet. And I sometimes annoy her because I'll use the rose emoji and then I'll use the heart. Love you, roses, love you, roses, love you, roses, love you. <laughs> and I just go on and on. And I'm sure sometimes I'm annoying. Is that true? Oh, you don't find me annoying? Praise God. I knew there was a reason I was teaching this book. Okay. She, she just destroyed me. She said, I don't find your emojis annoying. Yeah. Thank you, honey. A sense of humor in marriage is very important. And the fact that she's put up with me for three decades is really a miracle because I am a nut. <laughs> but anyway, never mind. We will make, now the, the wedding party, the ladies respond, we will make your ornaments of gold with beads of silver. We'll help fix you up on the wedding day. I think that's all that's being said. Now she speaks. While the king was at his table, this could be a couch or a circular table, my perfume gave, off, gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh, which lies all night between my breasts. Now, as they're sitting perhaps at the uh, wedding night banquet prior to the consummation, this is possible. She's giving off her fragrance. Now, I want to say something about fragrance. One spray is typically enough. <laughs> okay? 
Some of you have issues with liberality with the spray. We hug you and we smell like you for a month, okay? Others of you could use an additional spritz. <laughs> Don't look at anybody next to you right now. I think you know who you are, hopefully. Or they know who you are. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, now women at this time would wear a pouch of myrrh like a necklace. They would sleep in it. And then that fragrance would carry with them. They would take it off, but the fragrance would still be there during the day. Now you can see this is romantic, right? Where the pouch normally lies, he's going to be there on their wedding night. And she's anticipating that. She says in now metaphorical language, my beloved, notice how she calls him my beloved twice, 13 and 14, is to me a cluster of henna blossoms, a little red flower in the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi is an oasis in the desert. It is there today. You can visit it in Israel. And it's a place where you wouldn't expect to find a stream and a waterfall. It's a romantic place if you're going there for that reason. And she's saying something like this. Your love to me is life-giving. It's like water to my soul. And I hope and pray that that's what we are to our spouse. That we water them regularly. That we fill their tank. You know, some of you have read marriage books and they talk about filling the love tank and knowing people's love languages. And this is all kind of the same idea. It's the idea of speaking words of life. God is to us like living waters. And her, his love for her is like the growth, the fruit of a place like that. If you want a fruitful marriage, then these are some of the things that we need to do and to capture. And so um, we can restore tenderness in our relationship too if it's been missing. How beautiful you are, my darling, he responds. You know, when someone speaks this way to you, you can't help but want to reciprocate. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. Now, what is it about a dove that would make him think about her eyes? We might say something like this. Your eyes are like crystal blue oceans. Oh, that could be on a card. But your eyes are like doves. Well, in the ancient world, a dove was soft and innocent. And I think that's what he's saying. You are innocent, my bride. You are soft. You're a woman in every sense of that word. Don't worry about the fact that you've been a peasant working in the fields. You are a woman. Your femininity is beautiful. And she says, well, how handsome you are, my beloved. And so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. Our couch or bed is green, NLT. The soft grass is our bed. They may be anticipating a night out under the stars for their wedding night. Maybe a makeshift bridal uh, bridegroom chamber to consummate the marriage. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters, cypresses, maybe surrounded by the safety of the trees in a garden setting. Now, the idyll is not done. There's seven more verses. We'll move quickly. It ends at 2-7, idyll number one. And she says, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Many have attributed this to Christ, but actually the rose of Sharon, she's calling herself common. I'm like a lily among many lilies of the valley. But he says, no, you're not common. Sometimes we need to reassure our loved ones. No, you are not common. You are special. You are a lily among the thorns. Yeah, the other women here are beautiful, but you're the prettiest of all. So is my darling among the maidens. 
You know, when we speak words of life and reassurance to our spouse, sometimes, you know, I've learned about both men and women, but perhaps more about women, that looks are a big thing and there's a lot of, you know, body, uh, uh, you know, expectations, etc. And so when we reassure, it's like apples of gold in a setting of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances, Proverbs 25, 11. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved, she says. Among the young men, in his shade I took great delight. I feel safe with him and sat down. His fruit was sweet to my taste. These are definitely romantic, intimate images and metaphor. He has brought me to his banquet hall. It could be uh, the hall before the consummation. It's literally a wine house and has his banner over me. His banner over me is love. He spreads his banner. This is the idea when the ancient armies of Israel fought a war, they would fight under the banner or the flag of Israel. It would indicate who they served and who they belonged to. His banner over her means she belongs to him and he to her. This is my beloved. He is mine. I am his. It's, it's safety in covenant. If a man is trying to rush things with you, young ladies, he's the wrong man. Now, I'm not saying that we can't do things wrong. I've already told you that. But if he's pushing covenant stuff before a covenant is made, then you need to rethink that relationship. She says, sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples because I'm lovesick. Again, these are uh, intimate images let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace or caress me. And now many believe that they have moved to the moment of consummation. These are common Im images in Middle Eastern literature, ways of referring to intimacy and closeness. And that's what's going on. Raisin cakes could be nourishment or even an aphrodisiac, some say. But the images are no doubt about intimacy. This is what one writer says on a typological level. Typological inferences can be drawn from these figures. The scriptures speak of abiding under the shadow of the Almighty, of the Lord's guiding presence being like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The wedding banquet can be considered rather naturally as being the effect, in effect, a type of the great future marriage supper of the Lamb, and his love is our sweet nourishment. Close quote. Final verse. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now she turns to the wedding party the maidens that would love to have this kind of love. She calls the gazelles and the hinds of the field to be witness because of the garden setting. That you will not arouse or awaken my love until she or it pleases or so desires. Final verse. Now this is repeated in a couple different places. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 4. And a bit debated about the meaning. Some say it's as simple as he's sleeping, don't wake him up, a do not disturb sign, so to speak. But most commentators believe that this idyll ends with a warning. Even though romantic love is good, celebrated at a wedding, you know, obviously held up, expectation is high. It needs to be done in the right way and in the right context. And if the arousal comes too early and the emotions get stirred and you're in a compromising situation, you might do things out of God's order. And so it's a warning. Don't arouse love 
before it pleases or before it's the right context. That's the way I would take it. And I'll just leave you with this. There is a time and a place for sexual, intimate love to be realized and celebrated. It's in the covenant of marriage and not before. And what's hard in the church is that when you grow up in the church, you get constant warnings about red lights. Don't stop. Don't, don't put yourself in a compromising situation, etc. And then you get married and the light turns green. And now you go, okay, this was all bad, bad, bad. No, 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 no. And perhaps that's the problem is that's what we've been told about intimacy. But God made it up. And he blesses it in marriage. In fact, I believe that God is pleased with our lovemaking in marriage. When everything, all things being equal, right and true, it pleases him when we show that oneness within marriage. But there's a time and a place, and when it's out of order, there's a warning. Don't let the juices get flowing before they ought to, because then you'll make a mistake and I think what she's saying to her maidens is it was worth it to wait. Did you hear that one more time? It was worth it to wait. I've been mocked as a pastor. People have said to me, how can you expect people to wait till they're married? And I'm like, do you know I married a couple in their 40s and they were both virgins. They were both in their mid 40s and they waited for one another. You don't think you can wait? Why? Because of the culture? Because of the pressure? No, you save yourself until that time is right. Now, let me just say, in a room like this and people who are watching, I know failure is all over the place. Sexual brokenness, hurt, wounds, maybe even a relationship that's grown cold over the years. What now? What do we do? How do we start again? The truth is, that you can always start again in Christ. He gives us new beginnings. He allows forgiveness to flow over our lives. And restoration can happen. Go to the marriage conference. Can I encourage you? We're going to talk about how to laugh again, how to date. We'll talk about intimacy. Look, it's not perfect. It's not going to be perfect. There are all these circumstances that we got to deal with. And if we fairy tale everything, we're going to be in trouble. We live in a real world with real issues. But when we have not done things God's way, here's what I would say. Repent of it and get things right. And if you need to renew your virginity, recommit to actually doing things God's way, he will honor that. I know that personally because that's what he did in my life. Amen? Father, thank you for the folks that are here. They've been patient and attentive, and I'm grateful. There are many areas that I could have touched on, Lord, that I'm trusting that what you wanted to come forth came forth today. I'm praying for healing for someone who's feeling hurt and wounded and maybe even convicted or guilty. I don't think that that's your desire. Conviction maybe, but not, not guilt. Thank you that you paid for all of our shortcomings at that cross. And thank you that you love us and call us your bride. In all the areas where we've fallen short, or maybe even today where there's been 
compromise in that marriage bed that should remain undefiled. I pray that it would be pleasing to you once again, Lord. And we would find in you always hope, always grace, always a God who's willing to say, get up and and start again. I'll be with you. And thank you for those marriages in the room that are built on a covenant, a strong foundation. There's safety there and beauty there. And yes, the years go by and things change and we don't always feel everything every day of the week, but it doesn't matter because it's built on a covenant and love is a decision, not just a feeling, it's a decision. And I pray that we would be found true to our loves, Lord, to our love for you and to our love for our spouse and then our love for our families and church family. For those who are widowed or widowers or have the gift of singleness, I pray that you would remind them that you are their husband. You love them. You draw them close to you, Lord. And pray those who may be lonely and uh, this message maybe brings up a little bit of hurt. I pray that they would find safety in the shadow of your beautiful wings and your grace and that you would encourage them that one day the veil will come off. We will see you face to face. We're so grateful. If you haven't met Jesus, this would be a wonderful time to realize he paid the dowry by his blood to purchase you. You have to say, I do. There is a proposal on the table right now. Will you marry me? You have to say, I do. I will. And when you do, he'll give you the promised Holy Spirit, his engagement ring, guaranteeing the future consummation. He'll save you completely by grace and you'll have a new beginning. If that's you right now, ask him into your life. He's making the proposal, come to me. If you're weary, burdened by your sin, lost, confused, Come to me. Marry me. I'll make you safe. I'll forgive your sin. In fact, I died for you. That's how much I love you. Will you say yes? Will you forsake all other gods with a small g? Will you realize the great price he paid for you and enter into the new covenant? Well, right now, the ball's in your court. Maybe you've been wayward and you, you would say, I, I was a believer, but I, I cheated on God. I went back to the world, back to the idols of this world. You know, he's pictured in Hosea as a groom that doesn't give up even on a wayward bride. Come back home. He'll forgive you and you can start again. Father, would you be speaking to hearts? Would you save, restore, refresh? Do what you only can do. In Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.